Welcome to the Cocky Ride Home for Wednesday, October 26th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, a Russian film crew have arrived on the International Space Station to shoot the first ever feature-length film in space. A woman has received a brain implant that is successfully treating her depression by painlessly zapping her hundreds of times a day. And the 17th century health trend that was all the rage in Europe, corpse medicine. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. Two more people joined the International Space Station yesterday. Russian actress Yulia Perslid and director Klim Shipenko, alongside experienced cosmonaut Anton Shlaparov, docked at the ISS from the Soyuz MS-19 in the late afternoon. And apologies as we go on for my horrible Russian surname pronunciations. As Euronews pointed out, Russia was the first to successfully launch a satellite, the first to put a man in space, the first to put a woman in space, they did the first spacewalk, the first space station, and now will shoot the first feature-length movie in space. Quoting NPR, The crew is traveling to the ISS to film portions of a movie called The Challenge. The movie will reportedly tell the story of a Russian doctor who rushes to save the life of a cosmonaut aboard the International Space Station. End quote. Perslid and Shpenko will spend 12 days shooting the space scenes of the movie, and the other three cosmonauts currently on board will all play roles in the film as well. With space endeavors getting increasingly more creative and more commercial, it's also getting a little crowded. Last month, when the Inspiration4 crew orbited Earth, there were a record 14 people in orbit at one time. And now, Perslid won't even be the only actor in space this month. On October 12th, William Shatner, of Captain Kirk fame, will be joining Blue Origin's New Shepard for a 10-minute suborbital flight. He'll also become the oldest person ever to go to space at 90 years old, stealing the record from Wally Funk, who set it on Blue Origin's earlier flight in July. Since it's just a quick jaunt, Shatner won't be filming any movies or Priceline commercials, but there may be an American film crew shooting on the ISS sometime soon. Quoting the Associated Press, NASA confirmed last year that it was in talks with Tom Cruise about filming on the International Space Station with SpaceX providing the lift. In May 2020, it was reported that Cruise was developing the project alongside director Doug Lyman, Elon Musk, and NASA. Lyman told the AP that he was approached for the impossible mission by producer PJ Van Sandwijk, who asked him simply if he wanted to shoot a movie in outer space. Details have been kept largely under wraps, and no updates have been provided on the status recently, but as of January, Lyman said they were forging ahead. End quote. But once again, the Russians have done it first. A woman who has had major depressive disorder since childhood and been resistant to all forms of treatment is finally getting some relief, thanks to a brain implant that zaps her when her brain activity is beginning to show signs of depression. The so-called proof-of-concept trial published its results Monday in the journal Nature Medicine, and the woman, who is only going by her first name Sarah publicly due to the stigma associated with depression, was the only participant. So, of course, we'll need to see many more trials, but the researchers say they're very excited about the results and what it could mean for the future of treating and thinking about depression. 
Quoting The Verge, The trial used a technique called deep brain stimulation, where electrodes implanted within the brain deliver electrical impulses in an attempt to change or regulate abnormal brain activity. It's common for conditions like epilepsy and Parkinson's disease. Research over the past decade has shown that it can sometimes help with depression, but the findings have been inconsistent. Most previous efforts delivered stimulation to individual regions of the brain thought to be involved in depression. This study, though, was targeted at regions that were part of specific brain circuits, interconnected parts of the brain that are responsible for specific functions, end quote. Those targeted regions may be unique to each person, so a crucial part of this study was identifying what parts of Sarah's brain specifically to target. As the MIT Technology Review puts it, unlike how deep brain stimulation is used for patients with epilepsy and Parkinson's, quote, there is no single brain map for depression, and there never will be. End quote. And continuing from earlier in the MIT Tech Review piece, installing the device involved multiple steps. First, the team from the University of California, San Francisco, used 10 electrodes to map Sarah's brain activity. This phase took 10 days, during which time the team found that high levels of activity in a specific part of Sarah's amygdala predicted the onset of severe depression. They also established that a small burst of electricity to another region of her brain, called the ventral striatum, significantly improved these symptoms. Next, they implanted a neurostimulation device and set it up to trigger a tiny pulse of electricity in that area when it detects high levels of activity associated with depression symptoms, end quote. Those little bursts of electricity from the depression circuit zap her brain as many as 300 times a day for about six seconds each. All told, The Verge notes that Sarah gets about a half hour of stimulation from the pulses each day. Now, she can't feel them per se, but she vaguely knows when they happen because she says she gets a sense of alertness and energy, which is also why the electric bursts only happen during the day and not while she's sleeping. Within two weeks, her score on the commonly used Montgomery Asberg depression rating scale fell from 36 out of a possible 54 down to 14, and now it's under 10. It didn't even take two weeks for her to start to feel the difference, though. That score started dropping the morning after the device was turned on, and her mood changed immediately when she got her first stimulation. She says she actually broke out laughing in the lab, something she hasn't done genuinely in five years. And while you could wonder about the impact of Sarah knowing she's getting this treatment and therefore kind of willing it to work and that helping it actually work, you have to remember that she's tried tons of treatments in the past, from cognitive behavioral therapy to medications to electroconvulsive therapy, all with self-reported optimism and nothing had worked. The whole point of this study really is that depression really is something treatable and to a certain extent quantifiable in the brain, not just nebulous feelings. It's still very early days, however. The device they used for Sarah isn't even authorized to treat depression. It was designed for epilepsy and given an investigational device exemption by the FDA to try it for this experiment. But the team already has two more participants lined up and are working to bring on another nine, so further trials are barreling ahead. Co-author and neurosurgeon Edward Cheng emphasizes that both for current trials and in the future, this will be a last resort, not a first step to treating depression. Like brain surgeries for patients with epilepsy and Parkinson's, the procedure usually only happens after every other treatment has been tried first, since brain surgery is so risky, invasive, and, of course, expensive. 
Though Chang is also hopeful that in the future, devices that don't have to be implanted with surgery, but which can sit outside your skull, will become more precise and able to perform as well as the implanted ones. Now, personally, I'm curious about the long-term effects for these early participants. Will the device require repairs or replacing at some point? Will the research team's funder for this project always be able to cover that for Sarah if her insurance doesn't cover an experimental procedure without FDA clearance? What happens if it somehow stops working and she faces a sort of flowers for Algernon situation? I mean, I guess the good news is that this study, apart from showing that this certain method works, also gives greater credence to the idea that depression really is a brain disorder, and that's something that Sarah says she's hoping people will take away from this, as she has done. The idea that depression can be treated with a similar technique to what's used for epilepsy and Parkinson's will hopefully decrease some of the stigma around it. Quoting from The Verge once more, For her whole life, Sarah said she'd internalized some of the idea that she should be able to feel better if she picked herself up and tried hard enough. We tried every treatment possible, and I had such a positive attitude through all of it, and none of it worked. It just reinforced the depression and made me feel like I was the world's worst patient, and that was my own personal moral failing, she said. The trial changed that and helped the constant refrain from her doctors that her depression was a disease in her brain fully sink in. By the end of this, I went, oh my god, this is no different than someone with Parkinson's, Sarah said, end quote. From the latest breaking innovations in medical technology to the archaic and macabre, let's go back in time now to the 17th century, when Europeans were obsessed with something called corpse medicine, basically curing any ailment with some part of a dead body as the cure. While such techniques were in practice around the world in different cultures and fits and starts throughout time, two of its biggest booms were during the ancient Roman Empire and drawing heavy inspiration from that time in Europe in the 16 through 1800s. The basic idea, according to some erstwhile physicians, was that to treat a particular ailment, you should use a cure stemming from something similar, like literally the same body part but from another body, a dead body. Atlas Obscura gives the example of curing a toothache by touching a corpse's tooth to your own. It wasn't always this so-called like-cures-like methodology, though. It also got a lot more random. Referencing Richard Suggs' book Mummies, Cannibals, and Vampires, Atlas Obscura wrote, quote, In ancient Rome, the equivalent of medical professionals at the time advised drinking blood straight from a freshly perished gladiator, and similar practices continued through the Middle Ages. When Richard Baxter, a Protestant writer, suffered a fit of bleeding, he was cured by applying moss that had been grown on a human skull. To promote hair growth for anyone with a receding hairline, liquor of hair would help hair grow, while powdered hair taken orally was thought to help cure jaundice. For anyone developing cataracts in old age, human excrement could be ground into a powder, writes Sug, after which you would blow it into the eye. End quote. Uh, gross? I don't think it needs to be said, but I am not endorsing any of these methods of treatment. Please do not try blowing poop powder in your eyes. We've all seen Knocked Up. We know that's just how you get pink eye. 
Here's more from Alice Obscura, because this is all just wild and I can't look away. Quote, King Charles II of England was apparently very fond of using human skull in a concoction known as King's Drops. The recipe was simple. Take a human skull and powder it into a fine dust. Add alcohol to form an extract and drink it down. On his deathbed, Sugg writes, Charles II's doctors frantically used these drops along with a barrage of herbal enemas and treatments to no avail. The drops lived on, though, and were sold in shops in London throughout the 1700s for what 18th century physicians called nervous complaints and dysentery. In some cases, physicians added exotic chocolate or other herbs to the mix, but the skull was key to curing epilepsy, various bouts of bleeding, and it was believed that it could, at the last moment of one's life, prevent death. Some corpse medicine treatments seem to have nothing to do with the ailment. Fingernails, skull, mistletoe, and peony root were believed to help cure epilepsy, though you could also try dried human heart. Or, Sug writes, if you wanted to get fancier with your cures, you could infuse water with lily, lavender, malmsey, and three pounds of human brain. The whole corpse could be dried and sold as one piece, which Schrader recommended to other doctors lest they be cheated with subpar materials. End quote. Now, the cures may have been used by people from all classes, but was it okay if the corpses were from any class? Did it matter who the corpse had been in life? Well, yes, but not in terms of, like, higher-class people's bodies made better cures in death. The opposite, really. Bodies tended to come from people who had been executed or died in battle, from the poor, from colonized peoples, and from mummies stolen from Egypt. Basically, anyone that the imperialist Christians, ignoring their own religious dictates while accusing other cultures of being cannibals, thought were beneath them. It seems they even actually prized the people they subjugated even more in death than in life, being able to now use them more purely for their own benefit. Sometimes if a person had died a particularly violent death, their body was seen as even more powerful medicinally. As you can imagine, this corpse medicine frenzy did also lead to a fair amount of grave digging. Atlas Obscura notes that the English, who colonized and denigrated the Irish, used their dead as a possibly common source, and this instructional excerpt from German physician Johann Schrader might play into that. He wrote in Pharmacopoeia Medicochimica in the 1660s, quote, Take the fresh, unspotted cadaver of a red-headed man, because in them the blood is thinner and the flesh hence more excellent, aged about 24, who has been executed and died a violent death. Let the corpse lie one day and night in the sun and moon, but the weather must be good. Cut the flesh in pieces and sprinkle it with myrrh and just a little aloe. Then soak it in spirits of wine for several days, hang it up for six or ten hours, soak it again in spirits of wine, then let the pieces dry in dry air in a shady spot. Thus, they will be similar to smoked meat and will not stink. End quote. How gross and wild and disturbing is that? And it goes on and on. At the height of the corpse medicine trend in Europe, physicians and pharmacists were experts at utilizing every single part of the dead human body for remedies. Now, as I briefly mentioned, this extreme use of people's corpses in the name of science is a bit rich coming from people who were so quick to accuse other cultures of being cannibals. Zoe Crossland, archaeologist and associate professor of anthropology at Columbia University, pointed out to Atlas Obscura that Protestants and Catholics alike, even leading Puritans, were proponents of corpse medicine. No matter what their religion might have said, when push came to shove, they were willing to do what they had to to get the best medical treatment available. 
sounds kind of familiar. As Crossland added, quote, Humans are able, and in fact do all the time, carry these contradictory ideas, end quote. And, you know, that said, Crossland also points out that we kind of still do this. Blood transfusions, organ transfers, there are plenty of current life-saving procedures that depend on body parts from other humans. Usually they're from living, consenting humans these days, not corpses being violated after death, but still, I guess we have to remember that back in the 17th century, the innovations of corpse medicine might have been viewed as just as groundbreaking and promising and scientifically sound to people of the time time as our medical procedures seem to us today. You know, maybe one day we'll have even more seamless treatments that make our current methods seem gruesome in hindsight. But for now, well, I'm glad at least that corpse medicine has been relegated to the history books. No powdered human skulls for me, thanks. Alright, so this news is just breaking as I was sitting down to record, and so far it's not really coming from any sources that I would trust wholeheartedly, so take this with a grain of salt, and maybe I'll cover it later this week if it turns out to bear any weight, but apparently, the Zodiac Killer has been identified. Allegedly. A 40-member independent task force made up of retired investigators, military intelligence officers, and journalists have claimed to have identified the Zodiac Killer, who was known for a spree of murders in the late 60s and for his cryptic riddles and ciphers that he sent to the press and police. The team has also attributed an additional murder to the suspect, and the man that they have accused died in 2018, so he's not at large or anything. No police departments or the FBI have agreed to comment on the claim just yet, so, you know, it could be another false alarm, but I will say that true crime Twitter is absolutely losing their heads over this right now. But that is it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotke.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I'll talk to you again tomorrow. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. You know you Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC member SIPC.